One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Pros. Casper, I just got a wonderful wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it, but I cut off over a foot of hair and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Pros is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Chapter 10, The House of Gaunt. For the rest of the week's potions lessons, Harry continued to follow the half-blood prince's instructions wherever they deviated from libaceous borages, with the result that by their fourth lesson, Slughorn was raving about... I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Casper, did you know that Chris Borland was an NFL player who read about concussion problems and quit upsetting the entire city of San Francisco, where he was a player. I did not know that there was such a person as Chris Boland, but I'm sure glad that he did that. He's amazing. He had to, like, give back money. The point of that story is that we have a local group in the Bay Area. So if you're upset that Chris Borland quit, you can be happy that there's a Harry Potter and Sacred Text group. They are called the Restricted Section, and they're run by the fabulous Jeff San Gabriel. And if you want to join them or any of the other local groups now growing around the world, you can go to harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups. And we also want to thank our over 1,500 patrons. Woohoo! Our goal is to get 2,100 patrons. And if 2,100 out of our 70,000 listeners support us on Patreon, that will be the top 3% of our listeners who are supporting us on Patreon. So be one of the top 3% for just a dollar a month. You get extra bloopers every week. Please join us and be part of our 2,100 top 3% people on Patreon. Vanessa, our theme this week is temptation. I'm very excited for your story. So the thing that I am most tempted by in my life is chocolate cake. And then the second thing that I am most tempted to do 
is just be brutally honest with people in a way that I know comes across as mean. I know this in myself. I like to be very clear as to where everybody stands. And it takes a tremendous amount of thought and strategy for me to withhold things that I believe to be true and say it is not strategic for me to share my personal truth on this. And in fact, it will only be received as mean. So several years ago when I broke up with somebody because, quite frankly, I stopped liking and respecting him, it was a moment in which I wanted to be very honest But I really, like, harnessed a lot of hard-won maturity and was like, I will find a way to do this kindly. And so I did. And I broke up with him so nicely and compassionately. And then at the end of this, like, lengthy conversation, he asked me, he was like, can I just ask why? And I was like, I feel like we are just very different people who aren't compatible and you deserve someone better and I deserve a better match and like we both deserve better. And he was like, that's nonsense. Why? And I was like, no. And I again found like some magnanimous way around it where I was like, I really just believe like we aren't right for each other. We thought we were for all these very valid reasons, but we're not. And then he went a third time and was like, well, if that's true, can't we give it another chance? Or can you just be honest with me? And like, that was it. It was like he had given me permission. He had tempted me one too many times to do the thing that came naturally to me, which was to be brutally, brutally honest. And the thing that's really terrible is that when he asked the third time, Like, this glee went off in my head of, like, he asked for it. (laughs) I now get to be, quote, unquote, honest, parentheses, mean to him. And, like, I just got to justify it that he, like, tempted me one too many times. And that is what's so interesting to me about temptation is that temptation is different from all other forms of desire in that, When we are tempted, we know the thing that we are tempted to do is actually wrong. I'm curious if we're going to find this to be true, but I think temptation is always insidious. Oh, this is so interesting. Also, I just want to affirm that he was not the right match for you and you did the right thing. You were actually the reason that we broke up. He didn't like you. And I was like, well, bye. Because <laughs> Casper is part of my life no matter what. So I guess I literally chose you over him. Anyhow, <laughs> I'm tempted to talk more about that story. But I think it's really interesting, that idea that temptation has, uh, like, as you said, something where we know better or that there's there's something forbidden about it. I also think there's something in your story which is about that often temptation doesn't happen alone, that there's something about someone validating or encouraging, or in this case, explicitly inviting you to say it, which makes me think how temptation might be mediated through relationships. So as we explore this chapter, I'm going to keep an eye out for those two things. So, Casper, before we tempt everybody with our amazing analysis of this theme in this chapter, why don't you remind people what it is that happens in this chapter? 30 seconds on the clock. Indeed. Here comes the 30-second recap. On your mark, get set, go. 
So the House of Gaunt is an amazing chapter which really explores the Voldemort backstory and doesn't even mention Voldemort but really goes about his parents. So um, Harry and Dumbledore go into the pensive. Harry's like, oh, I know the password because you're my friend now and we have private tutor sessions. So they go into the backdrop and then Ogden, who's a former minister magic, not minister, but like an employee goes it goes to the house and it's near the big house. You think it's the big house, but it's a small house and there's a dead snake on the door and dad is abusive and son is horrific and awful and daughter is mother of Voldemort. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> I'm really leaving a lot of the content for you. I just wanted to set the stage because it's a very different stage than Hogwarts. I, I thought you did a sufficiently good job. 30 seconds on the clock for you. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So Harry is supposed to have um, detention with Snape, but uh, he has to go up for his talk with Dumbledore anyway. And Dumbledore is like, I'm going to stop telling you things that I know for sure. And I'm going to start telling you things that I can only guess at. And we're going to go into the pensive. And it's going to be different than ever because you're doing it this time with permission. <laughs> and we follow him. We follow him and we see this um, the Marope family. And there is a ring. Um, and they are like very proud of their Slytherin heritage. And then we find out that Tom's Tom's mom forces his dad to be in love. It's pretty intense. It's so bad. And we're going to talk about it. Yeah, we are. Because we learned that Marope is abused, beaten down. I mean, physically endangered just from this small afternoon that we have a, a glimpse of. Choked to within like an inch of her life. Right. It's a horrific situation. It seems like she's captured there. I mean, she's denigrated. It's all awful, awful, awful. And her one piece of, of life-giving moments in a day seem to be listening to the voice of Tom Riddle Sr. or seeing him out of the window as he rides by in his carriage. And can I say something else that must be really nice about it is that he denigrates her father and brother who are abusive to her. And so I wonder, we hear Tom Riddle Sr. being like, what a terrible family. The father is crazy and the brother is violent. And since she's not in a position where she can stand up for herself against them, it must be incredibly cathartic to hear this like handsome man of stature belittling her abusers. Yeah, there's there's many, many reasons why I think he'd be an attractive figure. I mean, we know that he's handsome. He also seems wealthy and powerful, right? He lives in the big house. We also know that he's, by all intents and purposes, in love with a young woman called Cecilia, who's joining him on this carriage ride that we witness. And so it's very clear that there's no reason why Tom Riddle Sr. would be seeking a relationship with Marope. What we learn that happens is after her brother and father are put in Azkaban, she has this incredible freedom for the first time and that she most likely concocts a love potion and tricks Tom Riddle Sr. into a relationship with her that becomes sexual and she becomes pregnant. And this lasts for more than a year. And that's the bit that really struck me because... I can imagine the thrill. I mean, I think we've all had crushes, right? Or certainly people that we long to reciprocate the kind of wild longings that we throw at them. And even the desire to perhaps trick him into liking her, right? All of that. But the fact that she drugs him continually for a year, to me, took that element of temptation into something that was really twisted and dangerous. And in this moment, in this chapter, there's this combination of something that's so relatable and something that I completely understand. And at the same time, this elongated sort of date drug being used, it's really twisted. And I feel like temptation has gone way further than just a sort of a momentary infatuation and exploration. It, It becomes its own form of abuse. 
Absolutely. And I agree with both of your points that I think this is a temptation that we all fall prey to a version of Mm. where we are tempted to be popular. And so we change ourselves and dress ourselves in a different way in order to try to fit in. Right. Or, you know, we change our behaviors in any way in order to try to convince somebody else that we are cooler or smarter or whatever it is that we feel that we are. Mm. And Marope has taken this to such a dangerous and horrific extreme. She only knows love through captivity. Yeah. Right? And I have incredible empathy for that. But she crosses a line to your point. And I think there are several levels of temptation in that, right? You give the love potion day one, promising yourself that you're only going to do it the once. Yes. And then... It's going so well, and so why stop it now? And then once you've done something once, it becomes much easier to Mm -hmm. do it a second time, and it just becomes easier and easier to do it. I can understand how it got to be a year, right? How day after day, you're tempted to do it just one more time and just one more time, and I would imagine that it actually took tremendous strength for her to stop doing that, but... Once you cross those lines, you cannot uncross them. Well, and that's what's so interesting to me is you're helping me see the two different temptations. The first temptation was to do it the first time. And however wrong it is, I have so much empathy for that because knowing what she's lived through and knowing what this means for her, it's certainly not a conquest. It's not about fulfilling her physical pleasure. It's about actually her discovering her own dignity in some way. And of course, that's all undone by the fact that it's enforced and drugged. But it's the second temptation that I think is the most interesting for our conversation, which is once you've done it once and you got away with it and everything seems to be okay, the doing it again. Whether that's a small tax evasion here or whether it's a shoplifting there, which, you know, I certainly did as a teenager. And suddenly you're doing things which when you went back to the very beginning, you would never thought you were capable of. It's that the classic slippery slope image, that temptation, how do we interrupt that? What do we do to stop ourselves from falling into those traps, which are all too human? And it's ironic that, of course, Marope is is a witch and she comes from this pure blood family. But like what's happening to her is, is this archetypal human failing of having unaccountable power and using it only to your own advantage. So what's interesting to me about temptation is that there have been studies to show that basically it's easier to resist buying a chocolate cake at the grocery store or at the bakery than it is to resist it once it's in your home. (gasps) And so for me, like, that is the only way that I avoid the temptation of cake is that I, like, don't bring it into the house. Because if it's in the house, I will eat the whole thing. In the house, in my mouth. (laughs) Exactly. And there are studies about this also in terms of cheating on spouses or cheating on partners, that the way to avoid cheating on your partner is to avoid the temptation, Mm. right? It's to not be the last person to stay at the office party, not be the person at the bar who's like getting a little tipsy at the conference, right? What's interesting to me about those studies is that basically what the studies are saying is that once you are in the acute moment of temptation, it is entirely human to give in to the temptations that the trick is actually to avoid putting yourself in a situation in which you're tempted. 
And Marope, I of course, I know that this isn't what you were saying, but we're not saying that drugging someone and date raping them the first time is OK. Absolutely. I, I know that's not what you were saying. But I think that that first temptation is understandable because she might have seen it as an act of freedom, as an act of escape. She doesn't want to be in this house when her father and brother come back from Azkaban. And so this is the way that she can figure out how to get out. And that is a completely understandable temptation. But once once it's been a year, it is full on monstrous, right? It has become something entirely separate. And the problem is, is that she put herself in proximity to the chocolate cake being in the house, right? Yeah. And I feel like, so now I'm going to contradict myself because before I was thinking about the way in which temptation is mediated through relationship. And now I'm seeing that Marope's isolation actually really contributed towards her falling into this temptation and acting in such a, a monstrous way. There's no one else that we know of that she can go to, right? Both her living family members, however horrific they were, are now in Azkaban. And really, Tom Riddle Sr. is the only person that she has any sort of contact with, even if it's partly imaginary. And so I'm starting to think about, um, you know, what are the relationships that we can surround ourselves with, whom we can tell the truth about our, our temptations, one of the things that I'm always going to take away from our time in divinity school was the kind of pastoral training that you go through if you're going to be a congregational leader. It's very normal, <laughs> whether perhaps if you take a vow of celibacy, if you're becoming a Catholic priest, for example, or if you're someone who's partnered, who's still leading a religious congregation like a rabbi or a minister, that you might develop feelings for a congregant. It happens all the time. And even if you if you get married or if you have a long-term partner, there are moments when you fall for other people. Newsflash, happens to everyone. Um, so what do we do when we have those moments of temptation? And this was the training that I remember, is that you tell someone, a colleague, maybe a different priest or a different rabbi or a different minister in a different congregation about, hey, this guy Jake is really great. We get on really well. We're interested in the same things. And I, I noticed that I maybe wanted him to hang around a little bit longer after our pastoral conversation. I don't want to do anything, but I'm just really aware that this came up for me whenever I'm with Jake, for example. Not that Jake Gyllenhaal is in my congregation. I didn't even know you started <laughs> leading a congregation of famous people. It's literally just me and Jake. It's, it's a <laughs> congregation of two. Mazel, mazel. It's wonderful. <laughs> right. And so when you've shared that moment of temptation, somehow I have felt that like, the grasp of that temptation on me loosens a little. It doesn't disappear. But I know that if I feel that feeling, I can call my friend, right, and say like, hey, it happened again, right? I'm feeling that feeling. And they might just be able to talk me down. Or It's not even that I have to be talked down. It's just, I just want to say it to someone so it isn't sitting in my heart and just like grabbing me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's why AA works, right? right. It's just about going and saying, I am tempted to drink and having other people saying, hi, I see you. Yeah. Right? Me too. Yeah, right. exactly. But I'm interested in what you're saying about Marope's isolation. I think her isolation leads to her desperation. Mm. But I do think that her father and brother's horrible behavior toward her made her feel as though this temptation wasn't nearly as bad. So I do think that it's like a community standard that's been set for her. Yeah. She isn't going to hit him. She isn't going to make him feel small. She's going to actually make him feel great. And she can say, I am doing something totally different than what I have seen as abuse. And so I do, again, think that there's this permission given to her by others to give in to this temptation. And certainly if this is the only real 
expression of love that she's ever seen, as you said, she may not even realize that there's something morally abhorrent about what's happened. I mean, if we just zoom out of this particular scene, the whole story of of what Voldemort was born into or Tom Riddle was born into is so tragic. It's so like no one comes out of this well. And I don't know, these these flashbacks are always challenging to us because they give a backstory to a character that we think we know and we think we understand. And you just see how absolutely desperate and sort of vengeful in a way the future Voldemort becomes because of this history in some way. That there's ugh, it's just sad. It just made me sad, Vanessa. Yeah. <laughs> Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. So, Casper, there is another moment of temptation here. So we know that Harry Harry and Dumbledore have gotten closer, you know, since their big talk and since their, like, adventure with Slughorn. And Harry certainly has been encouraged by Dumbledore to ask certain questions, mm-hmm. right? But in this chapter, we see him ask Dumbledore about his hand injury for the third time. He asked once on their Slughorn adventure, and Dumbledore was like, that's a story for another time. And then he asks at the beginning of their lesson, and Dumbledore's like, not right now. Then he asks again at the end, and Dumbledore again is like, not right now. And I think it's quite bold of Harry to ask 
the headmaster slash like most powerful wizard in the world the same question three times in order to be rejected three times? I feel like once I get rejected by someone I really respect, I like go and hide like a groundhog for a year and a half and like don't dare ask them another question for a while. So good on Harry. But I also think that it's not just bravery. I think that this injured hand is a constant temptation. It's not something that Dumbledore can keep in a drawer. It is everywhere Harry looks. It's right there. And again, like using that chocolate cake metaphor, it's like the chocolate cake is in the house (laughs) and it has icing on it. And like Dumbledore keeps like waving it under Harry's face and is like, and that smell good. No, you can't have any. But this is why I fell in love with Dumbledore all over again in this chapter, because I don't read what he does as a rejection. I read it as a postponement. Like every time Harry brings it up, as you said, he's saying kind of not today or or in this case, at the very end, he says too late. You know, like we, we've had our chat. It, you'll have to ask me next time. So it's never an outright no. It's always a we'll come to that in a minute or like not right now, but it, the, its time will come. And so I think in some ways he is encouraging Harry's inquisitiveness. At this point, Dumbledore said, you know, we're going beyond what I know is a fact, and we're now going into theory. It it feels like an affirmation of inquisitiveness rather than a kind of rejection of temptation to me. But can't he say, I'm so proud of you for asking bold questions. I will tell you when I'm ready. But this is where we forget that Dumbledore does not speak with clarity. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's one of his failings. Yeah. But there is something about, I mean, gosh, any physical sign of change, right? In this case, it's this kind of blackened hand, but it might be might be something on your face or an operation or, or you know, folks who maybe have one arm, right? Like everyone's always going to ask, well, how did you lose the other? Well, whatever it is. I find when somebody gets a haircut, right? like everybody all day has already said, oh, you got a haircut. And I'm like, Vanessa, don't say it. They're bored by it. And the first thing out of my mouth is, you got a haircut. <laughs> like we just can't not comment on changes. The, there's something about the temptation when somebody we know intimately changes mm-hmm. their physical appearance to just be like, must state obvious fact. It's like, like you walk into a room and there's a table and a chair and you sit down in the chair and on the table is a little thing with a button. Like, <laughs> it's going to be five seconds max before I press that button and I don't know what that button does. What is it about us humans? Like, that is just what we do. <laughs> Vanessa, there's one thing in the text that really struck me, and I don't quite know how to make it about temptation yet, but we're going to get there. When Harry and Dumbledore arrive with Ogden in this memory, we see first Morfin and then the the father Gaunt and then Merope. And there's so much communication that Harry doesn't first notice is happening in Parseltongue. Um, and in fact, I think we mostly see Morfin speak in Parseltongue throughout the whole chapter. Why do you think they're using that? Is it because he doesn't speak English or like, and how can we make this about temptation? Oh, I can make it about temptation in five seconds, (laughs) but it's very much based in like growing up knowing a lot of Hasidic and Orthodox people, which so Yiddish is the fastest growing language in the world per population percentage. And that is entirely about cloistered Orthodox and Hasidic communities Mm. deciding to only speak to their children in Yiddish. And they have a lot of children and they absolutely want to be populating the earth with Orthodox Jews. And there are a lot of really interesting historical reasons as to why that's happening. The, you know, Yiddish was all but a dead language only like 25 years ago. 
And so I completely understand this instinct of saying, like, no, we're not going to let genocides ruin this part of our culture and we're going to intentionally cultivate it. And so given how obsessed uh, Marvolo is with, like, their Slytherin identity, I can imagine that he only spoke in parcel tongue to his children and was like, we are going to reclaim this, like, essential part of our identity, which would add also to Marope's isolation. These, like, cloistered communities become really hard to leave because you're not educated in the language that is spoken four blocks away. That is so striking, in part because I now live in a city where I'm right next door to a large Hasidic community. The other thing that really strikes me is just how um, physical each of these Slytherin inheritances are. I mean, there's the language and then there's also the ring and the locket that Marope is wearing around her neck. Like each of these things is kind of being put either in or onto the bodies of these children to to represent this great legacy in a way that, of course, is completely at odds with their surroundings. They're living in squalor. They are maligned not only from the muggles, you know, the the non-magical people around them, but from the magical community itself. They're living at the very, very edge. And so perhaps this use of parcel tongue and insisting that parcel tongue be the only language as you're helping us see, it might be a way of trying to elevate the status of the children despite everything else. I mean, it's part of the story of it's okay that we're living in squalor because we have a ring and a necklace. Yeah. And this is essential to our identity. I mean, they could sell this ring and necklace and probably live quite well and eat well for a long period of time. But they would rather hold on to these tokens of their identity, which I think, depending on the circumstance, can be something to admire. Having pride in who you are and in your family's history and wanting to hold on to that. I think is can be quite beautiful, but this just seems destructive. Well, and the temptation, I think, that we can see in this part of the story is that it's actually not embracing who these children are. And, and the temptation is to live in this lost world and not see the needs and even the potential of who these children could become. There's a kind of myopic focus on history, which that temptation, I think, is... Certainly true with countries with legacies of empire. I mean, I think about my schooling and the history lessons that I had were completely focused on the history of the British Empire as kind of a a glorious thing. And by the way, we introduced railways to India, right? Like that was always the kind of the takeaway. And it makes invisible the, the huge negative impacts of that history. So there's a temptation in what stories we tell as well. Right. So since you got to bring something saying, I don't know how this relates to temptation, can I bring one? What you got? So there's an amazing Trelawney moment. (gasps) So Harry is walking to Dumbledore's office and he's sort of hiding in various places because he doesn't want to interact with people. Specifically, he sees Trelawney and he hides. And she is like walking down the hallway reading cards and you have it in front of you. Seven of spades, an ill omen, ten of spades, violence, knave of spades, a dark young man, possibly troubled, one who dislikes the questioner. And then she shakes it off that it can't be true because she really can't see Harry. Whereas we know that this reading of this card is exactly right. He is a troubled, dark young man who doesn't like her. And she is just immediately dismissive of herself. So wait, you think this is about Harry? Yeah. Oh, I've always read this, that it's about the the Gaunt family. Conflict, ill omens, violence, and then a young man possibly troubled who dislikes the questioner. The questioner is Ogden. Oh, no, it's about Harry. 
you're wrong. <laughs> no, but it's Harry is going to experience this. So this is still a future reading, right? Like he is going to see that scene for the first time. So interesting. Okay, well, either way, she is correct and she immediately dismisses it. Yeah. It's just so interesting. It's because she doesn't see it right in front of her. So she dismisses it. I guess how I can make it about temptation is that even somebody who's like interested in the occult and things that we can't see wants visual verification Mm. of the things that we can't see and is tempted to look for proof, which I think is like the way a lot of people interact with God, that it's like God is bigger than all of us. But when we're in moments of distress, we sort of ask God to present himself and help us guide whatever it is. But I'm wondering how you can make this about temptation. I just think it's so interesting and weird. I think the temptation I see is maybe even more than who it's about or what it's for is like why she's taking these cards out while she's walking down the corridor in the first place. Like it seems to me a sort of nearly a desperate attempt to try and make sense of what's happening. And the temptation is to not take the cards that she's given and really look at them and what they mean. But she's like, oh, no, they're wrong. I want to do it again. Right. Like I'm going to do one more bet. Right. Like that. That's the kind of temptation I think we see here. She's like addicted. Yeah. Right. Like like this is not the right answer. I want the right answer. I'm going to do it again. Oh, I keep hitting refresh that it's not the right answer that Trump hasn't been impeached yet. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, no, (laughs) I keep refreshing the New York Times. Eventually he will not be my president. Right. So, Vanessa, we are turning towards our spiritual practice. And as is appropriate in this Jewish New Year season, we're turning towards Chavruta. And the way that we practice this is to ask a question that comes out of the text. But before you pass the question on to someone else, you have to try and answer it yourself. So my question concerns the Gaunt family, no surprise. And I want to ask you, why does Morphin kill snakes and hang them on the door. It surprised me the first time I read it because my assumption was that, you know, as someone who can communicate with snakes, like maybe these are his friends and like (laughs) they get to hang out and have tea parties. But like, that's not really the vibe. Um, (laughs) So my answer is that actually Morphin does love snakes, but he only knows to hurt what he loves. Like we've talked a little bit about with his sister, you know, the way his father engages both him and his sister is is so violent that this is just how he knows how to communicate, essentially, is through violence. But I think that's probably incomplete as an answer. And so I want you to tell me, why do you think Morphin kills snakes and hangs them on the door? I mean, I do think it's in part a really good answer. We know that hurt people hurt people. He might be have learned to read his father's oppressive and violent nature as love, right? That whenever dad does this, he loves me. Right. So I I do find that really interesting. I also think that this is a supremacist family. And part of supremacy is also, it's believing you're better than anything, even than your totem, Mm. right? Your supremacy comes above anything else. And so even a snake. And then the other answer that I'm tempted to give is not one that I understand. It's just one that I've heard, which is hunters will say, like, I kill you because I respect you or I respect you. So I want to kill you, Yeah, which is like not 
a frame of mind that I understand, but it is one that, like, I've heard Teddy Roosevelt, <laughs> like, mm. quoted about with bears, that, like, the greatest form of respect for a bear is to fight a bear. And I'm like, I think the greatest way to respect a bear is to let it live its life <laughs> happily. So I, I, I just, like, believe hunters when they say that. That is not the way that I choose to show respect. But I also wonder if there's some of that going on. It's so interesting because I'm now thinking about the only other real relationship that we see between man and snake, which is Voldemort and Nagini. Well, we also see Harry talk to that boa. No doubt. Oh, that's so true. In the very, f- I was thinking of the moment when in the duel with Draco, he talks to the snake. Mm-hmm. But if we go right back to the very first chapters of book one, where he meets the boa and makes the the glass disappear. Thanks, amigo. Um, but in both of those cases, both with Harry and with Voldemort and Nagini, those are not relationships of violence. I mean, that, that in a weird way, there's sort of an intimacy between Nagini and Voldemort. Well, Voldemort entirely objectifies Nagini. Makes her into a Horcrux. Right, into an actual object. And so yeah. only keeps her near him because... Yeah. Like, she has part of his soul. So I do think that there's a dominating. Mm -hmm. I still think that your first point is really valid. And in fact, right, it's the only way that Marope knew how to show Tom Riddle her love. This is a family that only knows how to show love through dominance. But I also think that if you are only showing love through dominance, then you are objectifying the other person because you're only using the other person as a is a way to identify yourself as stronger than. And so I think that the answer is both of those things. Yeah, I think he's afraid. I think this is the only way he gets to feel safe is to, you know, belittle his sister, expose her, and then kill snakes. It's very sad. Yeah. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
So, Casper, our voicemail this week is from somebody who's anonymous, but she does talk about terminating a pregnancy. And so we want to offer a trigger warning to anybody who would rather not hear that. This voicemail is a minute 40. So if you want to fast forward that long, we will join you again then. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, Ariana, and the rest of the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. First off, I would like to thank you for this beautiful podcast. It brings me so much joy and also helps me make the decision to quit the job I hated. Thank you, Vanessa. I was recently listening to the episode on stubbornness, and Vanessa mentioned words that we whisper because we don't want God to hear them. Now, I don't consider myself religious by any means, but this really struck me. About a month after I quit my job, I found myself making the hardest decision I've ever had to make. I was pregnant and I was terrified. I told two people, my boyfriend and my best friend. I didn't want to tell my mom unless I decided to keep it, which I did not. I find it so difficult to even utter the words, I had an abortion, even to my boyfriend who was there for me throughout it all. And when I do, it's whispered. A lot of people will judge me for getting an abortion, and I don't regret my decision. However, it's not a decision I ever wanted to make. It was very painful and very personal. And as someone who grew up with the Harry Potter series, where a mother's love is a major theme, I think about Lily and Molly and even Narcissa. And even though they're fictional, I compare myself to them and I feel very guilty and ashamed. And I know I made the right choice for me, but I still whisper. And so I would like to bless all the women and girls out there whispering with me. Anyway, thank you again for the podcast and all you do. Thank you, Anonymous, for sharing that with us. I can only imagine the overwhelming cocktail of of emotions that were in the in the moment of that decision, but still today as well. And I'm glad that it was the right decision for you. And I'm glad that we get to make those decisions. And thank you for sharing that with us. I also just want to add that we compare ourselves at our peril. You don't have to be Molly or Narcissa. You have to make the right decisions for you. And I think that it is important to treat these characters as inspiring, but not as sources for shame or self-judgment. And I also just want to really lift you up because you say that this is something that you only share in whispers, but it is also something that you shared in a voicemail. And I'm sure a lot of other women are going to take great comfort in you sharing that story. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from these pages. And my blessing goes this week to someone we haven't really talked about, Bob Ogden, who is um, Harry and Dumbledore's guide through this memory. And we hear and see how he is attacked. I mean, he's he's literally kind of hexed when he enters the property. He's humiliated and he's chased off the property in in danger of his life. It made me just realize the difficulty of anyone who works kind of in a frontline social service, right? Whether it is a teacher or a firefighter or a policewoman or man, because you never know what you're going to find walking into a house or walking into a building or walking into a situation of conflict. And certainly in Bob's case, he's on his own. And so I want to bless anyone who is serving the wider community, entering into situations of of danger and to say thank you. How about you, Vanessa? I would like to bless Marope. She is trapped in an abusive home and only because 
her father and brother get taken to prison? Is she given the opportunity to free herself? And even then, she cannot totally free herself. So I just want to offer a blessing to anybody who's in an impossible situation. And I mean, to your point, right, like there's somebody in the wizarding world to punish, but there isn't. Mm. We don't hear about social services showing up and Mm. bringing her food or taking her to a home for women who have been abused, right? We don't see any sort of like wizarding social services come in. And so while her later actions with Tom Riddle are unforgivable, they are understandable given Mm -hmm. the way that she is abused and then abandoned. Yeah. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you, Casper. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on social media or join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about this episode. Come and join the over 1,400 people supporting us on Patreon and leave us a review on iTunes. I read every single one. (laughs) We also hope to see you at one of our live shows, Washington, D.C. on November 7th, Chicago on November 21st, and St. Louis, Missouri on December 19th. Next week, we're going to be reading an amazing chapter, number 11, Hermione's Helping Hand through the theme of pleasure. Don't forget to check out the Women of Harry Potter, where we recently blessed Ron Weasley. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions, executive produced by Ariana Nettleman, and associate produced by Chelsea Erson. Our music, as always, is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are a proud part of Night Vale Presents. We would like to thank Anonymous for this week's beautiful voicemail, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. We'll talk to you next week. Three, two, one. Abracadabra. <laughs> I forgot that that's the death one. I meant more like magic. Like abracadabra? That's so mean. That's fine. Dead. <laughs>